The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 99, the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He dwells between the cherubim, let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion, and he is high above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. The king's strength also loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. He is holy. Moses and Aaron were among his priests, and Samuel was among those who called upon his name. They called upon the Lord and he answered them. He spoke to them in the cloudy pillar. They kept his testimonies and the ordinance he gave them. You answered them, O Lord our God, you were to them God who forgives, though you took vengeance on their deeds. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. Okay, we're in Joshua 22. We had uh, two separate sections in this chapter. The first was, I believe, verses 1 through 9. And then this one uh, began at 10, and it goes all the way through 34. So it's been three parts. Uh, this is Joshua 22, 30 through 34. It's entitled, The Lord God of Gods, and it is part 3. So Joshua 22, starting in verse 30. Now when Phinehas, the priest, and the rulers of the congregation, the heads of the divisions of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the children of Manasseh spoke, it pleased them. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the children of Manasseh, this day we perceive that the Lord is among us, because you have not committed this treachery against the Lord. Now you have delivered the children of Israel out of the hand of the Lord. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and the rulers returned from the children of Reuben and the children of Gad, from the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the children of Israel, and brought back word to them. So the thing pleased the children of Israel, and the children of Israel blessed God. They spoke no more of going against them in battle to destroy the land where the children of Reuben and Gad dwelt. The children of Reuben and the children of Gad called the altar witness, for it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. And I'll say before I get started that um, I said when I typed this final sermon from this passage, I messaged Sergio, who was still in Israel at the time, and I said, what a fantastic passage this has been. And Sergio said to me not too long ago, he said, the things you always like, I don't like them. And the things that you think aren't going to be good, I find the best. So today we'll find out if he agrees with me or not. But I really enjoyed this entire passage and the typology that is presented. One of the most common and nauseating accusations that Christians will sling out at other Christians is, you can't be a Christian because. They then toss out their own pet peeve as proof that the other person cannot be saved. You don't read the King Jimmy Bible, you can't be saved. Show me that in John 3.16, please. Yet such accusations are as common as rice in a Thai restaurant. 
did you know that according to the Church of Christ, if you aren't baptized, you are not saved? Yes, really. Some even go further and say, if your baptism wasn't in the Church of Christ, you cannot be saved. Hmm. So we have just read the final section of Joshua 22. We'll evaluate the verses and then look to see why they have been placed here. But based on what I just said, you may have an idea that they give us typology regarding salvation. The tribes east of the Jordan really built an impressive altar. They had a reason for doing so as well. God chose what they did to reveal other things to us. As has been the case with the rest of Joshua, the detail all points to something else. It is a fascinating journey we have been on and that continues here. Our text verse comes from Psalm 32. It is verses 1 and 2. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. David wrote these words about a thousand years before the coming of Jesus Christ. He was a man under law, and yet he spoke of things that occurred apart from the law. He was able to rightly see things about God, his nature, and his attributes that many people in the church today still can't understand. And this is even after Paul took these words of David and gave a detailed explanation about what God is doing with them. What does it mean when David says, blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity? That will be revealed in our passage today. It is an exceptionally interesting look into what occurred with people like David. It is also a necessary inclusion in the pages of the Bible. Without it, there would be a void in how we might perceive a certain group of people who have lived in a particular dispensation of time. Get ready. Great things are to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got two thoughts for you today. The first is, Jehovah is the God. It's verses 30 through 34. In part one of this three-part series, Phineas and ten rulers from each tribe of Israel that settled in Canaan came to the eastern tribes and questioned them concerning the altar they had built. They reminded those tribes east of the Jordan about the matter of Peor and the trespass of Achan and the tragedy those events brought upon Israel. In part two, a response was given from the eastern tribes proclaiming their innocence in any sort of transgression. Rather than an altar for offering and sacrifice, they had built the altar to stand as a witness between them and the western tribes that they, too, had a right to the Lord God of Israel. Rather than the Jordan being a dividing border between the two groups, the altar standing above it acknowledged their right to participation in all covenant blessings of Israel. With that remembered, the final verses of the chapter begin with this, verse 30. Now when Phinehas the priest and the rulers of the congregation, the houses of the divisions of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the children of Manasseh spoke, it pleased them well. There is no when in the Hebrew. Rather, the flow of thought is, and heard the words, and it was good in their eyes. In the naming of Manasseh, no definite article is used. It says, and sons Manasseh. If you recall, when the article has been used, a note of separation has been highlighted. 
When not used, the thought is inclusiveness. Here they accept their actions and thus the people who took the action. In this verse, one can feel the sense of relief that must have permeated the delegation since they first heard of the matter. With each step closer to the meeting with the Eastern tribes, there was probably a sense of increasing tension. Then, as the Western tribes presented their case, there was probably heightened anxiety and maybe even anger. However, as the Eastern tribes began to speak, any such emotions would have dissipated. The defense began with an exaltation of the name of the Lord, continued with a rhetorical note acknowledging the Lord's right to judge them if they were in the wrong, then explained the reason for what they had done and ended with an adamant protestation that they would never rebel against the Lord. Their words were accepted and they were found pleasing in the eyes of the delegation. Verse 31, then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest said to the children of Reuben, the children of Gad and the children of Manasseh. Phinehas speaks on behalf of the delegation, addressing those from each of the tribes. Again, there is no article before Manasseh. We get the sense of inclusivity and fellowship because of this. As for his address to them, he says, verse 31 going on, This day we perceive that the Lord is among us. Hayom yadanu ki betokenu Yehovah. The day we know for in our midst Yehovah. In verse 20, the delegation mentioned the trespass of Achan. Because of what he did, the Lord told Joshua this. Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken some of the accursed things, and have both stolen and deceived, and they have also put it among their own stuff. Therefore, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turn their backs before their enemies, because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you anymore, unless you destroy the accursed from among you." And the Lord said he would not be with Israel anymore unless they remedied the situation. This is what the Western tribes feared would be the case with the assumed transgression of the Eastern tribes. Now, in knowing the purpose of the altar, they knew that the Lord had not abandoned them. Rather, he remained in their midst. Verse 31 going on, because you have not committed this treachery against the Lord. Asher lo me'otem be'yehovah hazeh, that not transgressed in Yehovah, the transgression, the this. It again points back to the transgression of Achan. When chapter 7 opened, it used the same words as those used here now. But the children of Israel committed, the word is ma'al, it's a verb, a trespass. It is the noun ma'al, regarding the accursed things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zavdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things, so the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. Side by side, this is clearly evident. Verse 7-1, and transgressed, Ma'al, sons of Israel, a transgression, Ma'al. Verse 22-31, not transgressed, Ma'al, in Jehovah, the transgression, Ma'al. These internal clues show us how seriously the Western tribes considered the matter. The Lord said he would no longer be with Israel until they resolved the matter of Achan's transgression. But more, that single transgression of Achan was considered by the Lord as an act committed by Israel as a whole. If it was done with perverse intent, how much more would this be a reason for the Lord's removal of himself from them now? What was perceived as a matter equal to or greater than that of Achan is now considered resolved because of the words of defense spoken by the eastern tribes. Therefore, 
Phineas continues, verse 31 continues, now you have delivered the children of Israel out of the hand of the Lord. There is no single equivalent word to fully express the word that opens the statement. Az hitzaltem et bene Yisrael miyad Yehovah. Consequently, have delivered sons Israel from hand Yehovah. The word az is a demonstrative adverb signifying then, now, or at that time. In this case, though, it is not strictly temporal, but the result of a logical sequence. This, this, therefore this. The fear was that Israel was again subject to harem, or being devoted to destruction, unless they acted against the perceived transgression. However, the consequence of their actions and the words of their defense have delivered Israel from such a state. With the matter thus happily resolved, it next says, verse 32, And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and the rulers returned from the children of Reuben and the children of Gad, from the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the children of Israel, and brought back word to them. The name of the half-tribe of Manasseh is notably missing from the words. Of this, John Lang says, in Joshua 22:32, the children of Reuben and Gad alone are named. And so in Joshua 22:34, merely for brevity's sake. I would disagree with such an idea. There is no such thing as for brevity's sake to be found in scripture. And if you don't believe me, go read Numbers chapter 7, where he repeats the exact same thing about this much in one paragraph, 12 times. When something is said, it is for a reason. When something is left unsaid, the same is true. This is more certain because the matter before us was conducted in the Gilead, half of which belonged to the half-tribe of Manasseh. So unusual is this omission that the Greek text includes Manasseh in their translation. They say, so Phineas the priest and the princes departed from the children of Reuben and from the children of Gad and from the half-tribe of Manasseh out of Galaad into the land of Hanan to the children of Israel and reported the words to them. It is certainly implied that Manasseh is included in the words, but the exclusion of the name should tell us that we are being explained things in typology as well as from a literal historical perspective. Manasseh has been named 10 times in this chapter. Five times a definite article has preceded the name and five times it has been omitted. The name is now noticeably missing from the final two mentions of the Eastern tribes, which occur after the matter has been resolved. This begs us to consider what is being said. Verse 33, so the thing pleased the children of Israel. Vayitav hadavar be'ene bene Yisrael, and pleased the word in eyes, sons, Israel. It is the same thought just presented in verse 30. What was pleasing in the eyes of the delegation is now pleasing in the eyes of the people. The word word signifies a matter or an issue. In this case, the matter that was reported to them consists of what was spoken in verses 21 through 29. Because it was an acceptable, even noble response, it elicited a response from them. Verse 33 continues, And the children of Israel blessed God. Ve barachu Elohim bene Yisrael, and blessed Elohim sons Israel. In using the word Elohim, it is referring to the power of God. The word is ultimately derived from ul, strength or might. 
Being plural, it gives the sense of powers or forces, which probably refers to the many aspects of God's working within creation. Such an idea is what was conveyed by Jesus to the Sanhedrin during his trial. Here's what it says from Matthew 26. And the high priest arose and said to him, do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. In the use of Elohim in this verse in Joshua, it is surely referring back to the statement made by the eastern tribes when they first responded to the charges brought against them. El Elohim Yehovah, El Elohim Yehovah. He is the powers of Israel displaying himself on their behalf. Because of this, the people blessed him. Verse 33 continues, they spoke no more of going against them in battle. The words here are unusual. Rather than spoke, it says, velo ameru la'alot alehem la'tzava, and no said to arise upon them to the war. As a general rule of thumb, when the word davar or spoke is used, it gives a sense of something that is considered without any sense of participation. When amar said is used, it usually involves participating in the action. What this is probably referring to is what was said in their initial words to the Eastern tribes from verses 15 and 16. Then they came to the children of Reuben, to the children of Gad, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, to the land of Gilead. And they spoke davar with them, saying, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What treachery is this that you have committed against the God of Israel to turn away this day from following the Lord, in that you have built for yourselves an altar, that you might rebel this day against the Lord? The Western tribes said they were the whole congregation of the Lord. That implied that the Eastern tribes were not a part of the congregation of the Lord. The Western tribes were on his side. The Eastern tribes were not. Thus, their actions were in participation with the Lord. Now they are saying that together, they and the Lord were not going to arise upon those of the Eastern tribes. Verse 33 continues to destroy the land where the children of Reuben and Gad dwelt. The attention is on the land rather than the people. La shechet et ha'aretz asher bene Reuven ubene Gad yoshvim to destroy the land where sons Reuben and sons Gad dwelt in her. This would go back to what they said to the eastern tribes as well. Nevertheless, if the land of your possession is unclean, then cross over to the land of the possession of the Lord, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take possession among us. But do not rebel against the Lord, nor rebel against us by building yourselves an altar besides the altar of the Lord our God. If the land was unclean, then the land was to be destroyed. The little nuances are carefully presented again and again within the passage to explain what was on the minds of the people, why things occurred, and why they turned out as they did. Verse 34, the children of Reuben and the children of Gad called the altar witness. The words are almost universally mistranslated. Here are several general options. And the children of Reuben and the children of Gad called the altar Ed, that is the King James Version. And the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad called the altar Witness, that's the NASB. And the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad proclaim concerning the altar, Young's literal translation. 
And the children of Reuben and the children of Gad gave a name to the altar, Darby. And the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad will call to the altar. That's Smith's literal translation. The Hebrew reads, Vayikreu bene Reuben ubene Gad la Mizbeach, and called sons Reuben and sons Gad to the altar. That doesn't seem to make sense. Therefore, various changes are made to try to make sense of what is being conveyed. The King James Version inserts the word ed, the Hebrew word for witness. Nothing to do with Ed Sullivan, by the way, or Ed McMahon, or Ed the Horse. They did this to anticipate the thought of the next clause. In order to do this, they consider the first word of the next clause as an untranslatable sign of a quotation for direct discourse. The NASB did the same thing, but they gave the English translation of Ed, which is witness. Young's takes the to the and assumes it means that it is referring to a proclamation that will be explained in the next clause. Darby takes the words and called, meaning and proclaimed, as meaning and gave. That would be like us saying, and they called his name Esau, which is what Genesis 25, 25, using the same word, says in the English translation. There it says, and the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over, so they called his name Esau. That literally says, and called name Esau. The problem is that it ignores the to thee before the word altar. If it said, and called to the Esau, such a comparison could be made. But it doesn't. Smith's literal translation is the closest, saying, will call to the altar. The verb is imperfect, and so he decided to make it a future action, indicating an ongoing thing. There's no need for that. Again and again, va-yikre-u is translated as and called. This gets the sense across as intended. With that understood, it next says, verse 34 finishes with, for it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. The words are emphatic. And again, not a single, not a single translation gives a literal reading of these words. Ki edhu benotenu ki Yehovah ha Elohim. For witness it between us for Yehovah the God. Rather than Yehovah is God, it says he is the God. Taken with the first clause, the whole thought reads, and called sons Reuben and sons Gad to the altar. For witness it between us. For Jehovah, the God. What is that telling us? The between us part is referring to the eastern tribes and the western tribes. The altar itself stands as a witness between the tribes. As for the altar before God, the God, it is an emphatic statement that Jehovah is the one true God. As was explained in the Deuteronomy 14 sermon, the definite article is expressive. It is used when referring to the one true God in relation to man. But more especially, it is in relation to those who are in a right relationship with him, or it is used to contrast those who are not in a right relationship with him. In this case, the use of the article tells us that both the eastern and western tribes are in a right relationship with him. Still, the passage itself must be evaluated in how it points to Jesus to be fully understood. To him who does not work, but who believes on him who does the justifying, there is a heavenly perk. So the word of God 
is testifying. His faith is accounted for righteousness. This is the blessedness of man. And this is the secret of his success that is set forth in God's redemptive plan. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and those whose sins are covered. They have gone from death to living. No more will fault in them be discovered. Our second thought today is an explanation of the typology. The first thing to remember is what the two sets of tribes picture. All the tribes have received an inheritance. One set of tribes received theirs on the eastern side of the Jordan, while the others received theirs on the west side. The Jordan, the descender, picturing Jesus in his incarnation, is the dividing line between the two. In the first portion of chapter 22 was an explanatory note concerning the salvation of those who anticipated the coming of Messiah while living under the law of Moses prior to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Moses was mentioned five times in relation to them, and it explicitly stated that it was he who gave the inheritance to the tribes. That was verses 22, 4, 7, and 9. However, verse 4 said of the tribes west of the Jordan, and now the Lord your God has given rest to your brethren. Those east received their inheritance through Moses, but with the coming of Christ, the law is obsolete, it is annulled, and it is set aside. No person can receive their inheritance apart from Christ since his advent. And no person before received his inheritance apart from Christ either. That'll be explained. Even though there are seven more years of law yet ahead for Israel, those years will not bring anyone to salvation through law observance. Rather, they are intended to finally drive Israel to the understanding of their need for Jesus Christ. This is what will occur with national Israel someday, and it is what chapters 3 and 4 of Joshua dealt with. Pertaining to the salvation of national Israel, what is a deduction someone might incorrectly make about those who were under the law prior to the coming of Jesus? Well, if national Israel had to come to Jesus even while under the law, meaning the seven years of tribulation, then those who came before Jesus' incarnation must not be saved at all. How could they be saved and have received an inheritance without Jesus having come? Obviously, this is just a proposed speculation that should not realistically be considered. However, this is exactly what several other sets of typologies we have seen in Joshua were conveying. Remember when the king of Ai was hanged on a tree? That was a picture of the law dying in Christ when he was hung on a tree. And yet the same picture was seen again with the five kings in Joshua 10. They were hung on five trees. Those five kings pictured the five books of Moses. Wasn't it obvious that the entire law died in Christ? Well, yes, but the second picture was given to avoid any future arguments, such as, well, Jesus fulfilled Genesis through Numbers, but Deuteronomy is still in effect. If you don't believe that people would say that, go talk to the Hebrew Roots people. As nutty as that sounds, God is covering every base so that we can know exactly what the redemptive narrative entails. Other such obvious, my sermon editor told me never to use the word obvious, speculations were resolved elsewhere in Joshua as well. Chapter 22 is no different. Of course, you who believe before the coming of Jesus are saved. Well, yes, maybe, but... Remember last week in the middle of the sermon, I stopped and asked, is David saved? And everybody shook their head and said, yes. Well, this could be an argument. This could be something that somebody's theology improperly handles. 
This is the purpose of the account given in Joshua 22, 10 through 34. God is meticulously covering every base so that we don't have doubts about such things. The effects of the work of the Messiah, Jesus, goes both forward and backward for Israel. But the effects also go forward for the church, meaning Jew and Gentile during this dispensation. The rapture, for example, is something limited to those of the church, but it applies to all within the church, regardless of ethnicity, gender, age, and so on. Somebody could say, well, Jews aren't going to be raptured. That would be incorrect. There, Paul will be taken up at the rapture, right? But somebody could say, well, that's not true. The typology will tell us in the Old Testament it is true. These things have been seen in numerous passages in the book of Joshua. To ensure that we know what is going on with the Old Testament saints concerning their relationship to Christ Jesus, we have been given these verses today and over the past two sermons. The eastern tribes came to the circles of the Jordan, which was still within the land of Canaan, meaning the inheritance of the humbled granted to national Israel by the Lord. There they built this great and impressive altar, a replica of the altar of the Lord. The circles, Gililot, signifies liberties. Despite living under the law, their altar is a testimony to the liberties they possess. And more, it was built not by the Jordan, but upon, over, above. The word means anything with that kind of sense. It was built upon the Jordan. The picture of Christ is plain. Their altar is a testimony to their salvation in Jesus Christ despite having lived under the law of Moses. Moses gave them their inheritance, but ultimately the Lord gave the law to and through Moses. The salvation of these people under the law, resulting in the inheritance granted to them, came by faith, not by works of the law. Hebrews 11 is a perfect testimony to this. The chapter speaks of the faith of the saints from Abel all the way throughout the time of the law. It finishes with these words, and all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Hebrews is written specifically to the Hebrew people, but it is given as a contrast between Moses, meaning the law, and what Christ offers. It is a warning that to choose the law when the knowledge of Christ has been understood is a self-condemning act. Thus, it is especially an epistle directed to the end-time Jews of the tribulation period, even if what it details pertains to all people in various ways. In other words, Christ is the atoning sacrifice for sin. That pertains to everybody, but the content of the epistle pertains to the end-time Jews that are going back under seven years of law they have a choice to make. The reaction of the Western tribes and the words of the delegation confirm this. The idea of the Eastern tribes going to war against them from Shiloh, tranquility, gives the sense. We have the inheritance because we have accepted Jesus and were granted our rest. You, however, were under the law. If they were under the law, then how could they participate in the inheritance? Going to war against them indicates that they are not on the same side. However, before war was declared, a delegation was sent to discern the meaning of their actions. Phineas, mouth of judgment, son of Eliezer, whom God helps, was sent. A judgment will be made concerning their actions as God helps them come to an understanding. The two and one half tribes are mentioned by name, 
but there is no article before Manasseh because the other half-tribe of Manasseh is a part of the delegation. Despite the disagreement, a sense of inclusiveness is anticipated through the dialogue. Further, the meeting is in the land of the Gilead, the perpetual fountain. The eastern tribes supposedly have the spirit, but the erection of the altar seems to indicate otherwise. The matter must be resolved. Along with Phineas, there are leaders from each of the ten tribes. Ten signifies the perfection of divine order. It implies that nothing is wanting, that the number and order are perfect, that the whole cycle is complete. The ten leaders have all they need in Christ, the fulfillment of the law, summed up by the Ten Commandments. These ten leaders are representing those ten commandments for the sake of the narrative. Phineas represents the sacrificial part of the law of atonement and propitiation before those ten commandments. The statement of verse 16, thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, indicates that they feel they are the only true congregation and the others have excluded themselves by their actions. Those under the law have trusted in self, the law, or some other God, but they have not trusted in the Lord. Their actions were deemed as transgression, seen in the use of the verb and noun ma'al. Like Achan, who had broken the law of coveting, these people had transgressed and not followed the Lord. Their action was deemed as an act of rebellion as well, the word marad, just as those who refused to believe the Lord in Numbers 14 had rebelled, marad, against the Lord. Even more, the sin of Peor, that of adultery, of bowing down to false gods, was brought to remembrance. By building the altar, the eastern tribes were accused of similar sin highlighted by the use of an emphatic you. With that, the offer was, nevertheless, if the land of your possession is unclean, then cross over to the land of the possession of the Lord. Think of it. We want you to have to trust in Jesus before you come into the possession. That's what's being pictured here. Think of Jesus in the typology. You are of the law. You need to come to our side of Jesus' incarnation, and you can then share in the inheritance. That is where the Lord's tabernacle, picturing Jesus, is, and take possession there. Everything they say smacks of the words of the book of Hebrews. For example, Jesus is what the tabernacle only prefigured as revealed in the book of Hebrews. We have Jesus. You just have types and shadows. You are not of the congregation of the Lord. Building an altar is rebellion. Despite the accusations, the response of the Western tribes refutes their words. They emphatically appealed to El Elohim Yehovah as their witness. They then said, He knows, and Israel, he shall know. Israel will realize what the Lord already knows. Their altar is not of rebellion or of treachery. It is not for offerings or for sacrifices, all of which are fulfilled in Jesus. If it was for these things, then, as they said, Yehovah, he will seek. The Lord knew their intentions and their state before him. However, those of Israel who see the division between the two, the Jordan, the descender, meaning Christ in his incarnation, might say, you aren't of us. The Lord has set Jesus as a division between us. In verse 25, at the time this was said, Reuben and Gad were mentioned without Manasseh for the first time. Because half of Manasseh was west of the Jordan, it could not be said that Manasseh had no inheritance within Canaan. As an example, people say there are 10 lost tribes of Israel. You hear that all the time. Totally incorrect. 
After the exile of the ten tribes by Assyria, people from many of those tribes are noted in both Old and New Testament passages. If there is a single person from a tribe, that tribe continues. That is evidenced by the words of Jesus, Paul, and others in the New Testament when they refer to the 12 tribes of Israel, even in the present tense. Hence, Manasseh is not mentioned because Manasseh has a portion west of the Jordan. However, Reuben and Gad are singled out as having their words, not to you portion in Jehovah, but they did have a portion, even if it came through Moses. That is the point of this passage. The Eastern tribes do have a stake in the Lord, and that is why they determined to build the altar. The article is expressive, and it indicates that there is a set intention for a particular altar. It wasn't for offering or sacrifice, but it served as a witness for witness it. The altar upon, meaning above or over the Jordan, is an emphatic witness for them to serve, service Jehovah to his face, meaning on the true altar. That is where they would offer their burnt offerings, their sacrifices, and peace offerings. As the altar of the Lord is a typological anticipation of Jesus, then their offerings are also to Jesus. The altar is witness to that fact. As such, there could be no claiming against them. You have no part in the Lord. The construction of the replica of the altar is evidence of this. The altar then is one of faith. We are of the Lord, and this is witness to it. If it was of works, it would be used as an altar is typically used. But this altar was not. It was a witness and nothing more. Verse 30 that opened us today showed that Phineas and the rulers, 10 of them, heard this response and they were pleased. They now get it. Those who are under the law, but who anticipated Jesus, are truly of Israel. The priest, representative of the sacrificial system, and the ten rulers, representative of the ten commandments, and thus the entire law, are satisfied through their act of faith, not in their adherence to the law. Hence, they acknowledge that in our midst, Jehovah, faith in anticipation of the coming Messiah saves, just as does faith in the Messiah who is come. They also acknowledged that these men had not transgressed in Jehovah the transgression. In other words, they are blameless before the law because of their deed of faith. With this acknowledgement, the people were delivered from the hand of the Lord and Phineas, meaning mouth of judgment, son of Eliezer, whom God helps, and the ten rulers returned from the sons of Reuben, see a son, and the sons of Gad, fortune, from the Gilead, the perpetual fountain to Canaan, the land of the humbled. The judgment has been rendered. The Lord has intervened. The status of these men is no longer in question. They have the spirit and all is well. Again, as before, there was no need to mention the half-tribe of Manasseh because Manasseh was already represented among the tribes from the West. This would explain why the word for tribe, mate, was used in the first verse of the chapter and Shevet was used in all other instances. The genealogical aspect of the tribe was secure. The political aspect of the Eastern half-tribe is what was in question. That is no longer the case. The words are telling a story if we just pay heed. Verse 33 then noted that the word was pleasing in the eyes of the sons of Israel. 
There can be no future questioning. Because of the faith of these people, the sacrificial system that anticipated Jesus Christ was acceptable for them, and the Ten Commandments testify to this for them. Therefore, they blessed Elohim because of it. Christ, who sits at the right hand of the power, is praised by Israel because he has saved all of Israel who have come to him through faith. And he supposed enmity between the two, meaning before his coming or after his coming is ended and the war is averted, which would have destroyed the land where the sons Reuben and sons Gad dwelt in her. The land is the land of the Torah, the inheritance that came through the law of Moses. As long as it was by faith in Messiah, Israel could receive the inheritance. How can we know this? Because of the final verse of the chapter, and called sons Reuben and sons Gad to the altar, for witness it between us, for Jehovah the God. What is that telling us? The altar was not for works of any kind, but it was an altar of faith built above, over, or on the Jordan. Those who were before the coming of Christ called to the altar in faith. It didn't matter if they were under law. The law comes from the Lord. It anticipated the coming of the Lord, and the people of faith under the law called out to the Lord. As for the word replica used in this passage, it is the Hebrew word tavnit. It is the same word used in modern Hebrew Bibles to describe the pattern noted in Hebrews chapter 8. Here's what it says there. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of heavenly things. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern. Hebrew Betavnito, literally, in his form, show you on the mountain. The things of the tabernacle, including the altar, were only typological representations of Jesus. He is the altar. The replica of the altar built by these tribes was an anticipation of Jesus Christ to come. As this is so, and as the altar in Israel was the altar of Jehovah, it is a logical and necessary deduction from this passage that Jesus is Jehovah incarnate. He is Ha Elohim, the God who stands in relation to man. This is what the passage before us is about. David was a man under the law, but if you remember our text verse today, what I read you, our text verse showed us that despite being under law, he was not imputed sin according to the law. But by the very nature of the law, sin is imputed. Therefore, he, by default, was a man of faith in something greater than the law. When he sinned by taking Bathsheba, God's prophet spoke to him in 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, saying, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. The Lord's mercy was bestowed upon David apart from the law of Moses. David thus deduced that if this occurred, then God's other divine attributes were also to be realized in our relationship with him only, only apart from the law of Moses. The law then must have another purpose than to bring man into a right relationship with God. Although David didn't have a full comprehension of the work of the Messiah, 
He did understand the blessedness of man who received God's righteousness apart from the law. Unfortunately, how many people in the church today do not understand this? Reinserting the law for every possible precept that you can imagine, starting with tithing and going all the way down to observing feasts and Sabbaths and all of that other stuff, all picturing Jesus, all fulfilled in Jesus. It is this faith in God's people who are under the law that is revealed in Joshua 22. To close, I would ask you to consider your own trek towards the inheritance. How do you think it will come about? If you suppose it is through something that you have done or that you need to do, then you have failed the test. However, if you will simply have faith that God has done the work and all you need to do is accept that, you will be saved. God cannot deal with you unless you first remove yourself from the equation concerning effort. God has done that. That is the point of this. The cross of Jesus Christ, he did the work. He doesn't ask you to add anything to it, and if you try to, you mar the cross in the work of Jesus Christ. He's done all of it. Now just believe. This is what pleases God and nothing more. As Jim said when he opened us today, it is impossible for you to lose your salvation because God, He has done the work. You, by faith, receive that. There's nothing that can be added to it. It's a done deal because of that. If you think you can lose your salvation, it means that you are actively marring what Jesus Christ did and what God offered to you by a guarantee. It is impossible. But people can't think that way because I, I, I always comes into the equation. Always. I must do this. I've got to give to the church or I'm not a good person. I've got to do this or I've got to do that. You want to give to the church? Send your money to Charlie Garrett. I'll spend it all day long. That's a joke, okay? (laughs) We have never asked for anything in this church, ever, because that is not the point of this church. People have helped this church because they appreciate it, and I appreciate that very much. But I have part-time jobs, and we're going to reschedule our life now that Hedeco is retiring next week, and we'll figure out what to do. But that is not going to get you one step closer to heaven. Any church that tells you you need to tithe, you go to the pastor, tell him what the tithing verses say. If he disagrees, leave. He's putting you back under the law of Moses. Jesus Christ has done everything for you, everything. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. Simply put your trust in him and be done with your enmity with God. Because once you believe in Jesus Christ, you are now, the term is, anybody? In Christ. In Christ. He cannot deny himself. You have become in Christ. It's done. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus was buried. Jesus rose again. That's all that he asks of you to believe. From there, do all kinds of great stuff for the Lord. Do it in whatever way you want, but do it for the Lord. Think about the Lord. Talk to the Lord. If you help somebody, just go out and do it. But do it in the name of the Lord, and you will receive your reward. Anything done in faith will be rewarded. Anything not done in faith will receive no reward. That's how it works. But that's what this passage is showing us. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. How could David write those words? He was a man under the law, and by definition of law, you must be imputed sin. And so David understood that the law is not what God is doing. What God is doing is greater than the law. And that means if that is the case with that precept, it is the case with all of the attributes of God, because God is one. 
the law is simply a part of his redemptive plans to lead us to an understanding of our need for Jesus Christ. Give up on law, give up on self, come to Jesus. Praise God for Jesus. Our closing verse comes from Romans chapter 4. But to him who does not work, listen to that again, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Here it is, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Remember that works are law. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Paul explained it so clearly that a child reading it for the first time will understand it. But the greatest theologian that inserts himself into that equation will never understand it. I'll tell you how important the book of Romans is. I was at Wycliffe. I was going to sign up for being a Bible translator years ago. I was all ready. We're ready to go. I'm ready to go into training. And Hedico says, I don't want to go overseas again. Well, that light got switched off immediately. She's my wife. I'm going to not do this. But while I was there, one of the people was talking about a person that was a missionary went, we'll just say Papua New Guinea. I think it was in that area of the world. We'll say Papua New Guinea. This guy is there and he is doing the work. He's learned the language and now he is doing the work to get a Bible into the hands of the people. This is their job at Wycliffe. It's not just to tell people about Jesus, but to get this precious word of God into human hands. And one of the people there learned the English language. And that woman was helping him translate. And he gave her the portion of the book of Romans about imputation. And she translated that. And she turned around and read her translation. And it was the first time she understood that doctrine. Until you can read something and understand it, it doesn't mean anything to you. And it wasn't in her native language, and so she didn't understand it. But once she had put it into her own language, she now understood that doctrine. And that's why I say a great theologian that inserts himself into that passage will never understand that passage. She simply took what she had translated and read it, and she understood God's grace. Don't mar grace. Next week is... uh, Joshua 23, it's verses 1 through 16, the whole chapter. The faithlessness, what's that? The whole, yeah, he loved this. He typed this a couple, uh, maybe three weeks ago, and he said, I just typed it. What a great chapter. Uh, we'll see if the sermon bears up. Uh, the faithfulness of the Lord has been unveiled. It's entitled, Not One Word Has Failed. That'll be our 54th Joshua sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It is he who defeated the enemy and who now offers his people rest. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Now, I have a question for you today. This one is easy. I know I say that every week, but this one is easy. I, uh, I was sent it. I decided to use it. And if you get this, I, I want you to raise your hand so that you don't, you know, when there's an easy one, 10 people say it and I got to pick somebody and I hate doing this. So raise your hand. Um, not yet. And if you win, you will get from Sergio and Rhoda who were in Missouri recently. They came back with camel beef jerky. They, they jerked a camel. 
Okay. You're welcome. Raise your hand if you get this. Make, make, make sure you raise your hand. What was Saul's father's name? Kish. Kish. Okay, Burke got it because he had his hand up. You were right. Ethan was probably right. I heard something close, but I'm going to leave this. I'm not going to put. The, I'm going to leave that right there for you. I'm not going to put that on the table because it's camel. Um, all right. Well, we we got an answer. Saul, the, Saul, the son of Kish. All right. And we got a poem for you, and we'll be done, and we'll take the Lord's Supper in just a second. It's entitled "The Lord God of Gods," Part Three. Now. When Phineas, the priest, and the rulers of the congregation, the heads of the divisions of Israel, who were with him as well, heard the words that the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the children of Manasseh spoke, it pleased them pretty swell. Then Phineas, the son of Eliezer, the priest, said to the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the children of Manasseh this word, This day we perceive that the Lord is among us, because you have not committed this treachery against the Lord." Now you have delivered the children of Israel out of the hand of the Lord. Things are looking swell. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and the rulers returned from the children of Reuben and the children of Gad, from the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the children of Israel, and brought back word to them that things weren't so bad. So the thing pleased the children of Israel. And the children of Israel blessed God in a manner heartfelt, they spoke no more of going against them in battle to destroy the land where the children of Reuben and Gad dwelt. The children of Reuben and the children of Gad called the altar witness, for it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. So it is, so we confess. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you that every single thing that may trip us up in our theology is there presented in typology so that we can more clearly see what is going on in the New Testament. And Lord, it would be so wonderful if people would check these things and read the Old Testament and think about it because then their theology would not come into error. Oh, the church has replaced Israel. Oh, it's going to be a mid-tribulation rapture. Oh, Jesus doesn't care about those who were under the law. All he cares about is those who are saved after Jesus came. Those things are all dispelled and a thousand, ten thousand more are dispelled through simply understanding typology. Thank you for this precious word which solidifies our doctrine when we pursue it. Thank you for your wonderful word and thank you for Jesus who went to the cross to remove our sins. Thank you. In his name we pray, amen. I have a certain person that pesters me every week about what the sermon is talking about. And he, he tries to milk it out of me very slowly and he usually succeeds. Today I was firm enough to not give it all away, but there you go. Um, did I push this? Yes, I did. Okay. We get the instruction. Oh, I never turned that on. Dang it. Well, hopefully that works. I know it well. <laughs>